Welcome to Systems Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organisational systems are designed to maximise the impact of businesses for customers, owners and workers. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giyabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode is Andrew Smith. Andrew is currently the Chief Engineer at Northrop Grumman, who have an established and growing partnership with Australian Defence, particularly in terms of space capability, which is part of Andrew's portfolio here in Australia. His role now is to connect businesses so that they enhance Australia's space capabilities. And Andrew has a strong track record in developing others, which he enjoys. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks thanks for having me. Andrew, can you give the listeners a bit of a background to your career so far? Yeah, so I suppose I'm coming to the highlight of my career. Um, Started leaving school, joined the Army early in life, Uh, did 25 years in in the Defence Force, both uh, in Imagery and in Signals Corps. Found out late in life that I could be educated. So uh, I think it was the, the later part of my army career, I ended up going to university and found that, you know, I could be more than just a machine gunner and uh, started my engineering career. So before exiting the army, I thought I better have something to go to <laughs> when when this adventure is finished. And so to get promoted to warrant officer in Signal Corps, you have to do RMIT for 12 months which is quite an intensive course um, where I got introduced to engineering. Um, from there, I was posted up to um, Kabbalah, just north of Toowoomba there, and uh, figured that I'd continue the education. So I enrolled at USQ in Toowoomba and started my Bachelor's of Engineering, doing it part-time. I still sort of struggled through my Bachelor's of Engineering because it was always hard with wife, kids, you know, family, work commitments and study. Finally got through it, finished my Army career and then... The last posting was in Sydney to a place called Dan SDC, which is the Defence National Distribution Centre, where I was in charge of all the um, crypto equipment or cyber equipment for the Defence Force and other organisations. And uh, and then they were going to post me to Canberra, which I thought, you know, I'm not real keen to go to Canberra. Uh, so I thought maybe it's time to um, separate from the Army and, and look at the next career. So I was fortunate enough to get picked up by Talus Australia which was ADI, Australian Defence Industries, back in those days, working on the uh, Aussie Tiger, which is um, an attack helicopter where I was a team lead for the, uh, the communication system and developing electronics onto that platform. From there, I um, did a couple of years on that project and then we moved from um, Sydney back to Brisbane and I got a job with Boeing and I was working on the Vigilator system, which is a radar uh, system where they bring all the different um, radar assets around the country and it gives you the uh, the uh, defence of Australia from a, uh, you know, a vector-type perspective. And so it was a cool project. Then I was looking at my CV and, then you know, I was probably 25 years into my career and I was, it was all Army, all defence, so I figured I needed to diversify. So I went back to Talis and did the uh, the free-flow tolling system up here in Brisbane. I don't know if 
any viewers re remember the old going across the bridge, you have to stop at the gate, pay your two bucks and continue on. Well, uh, they wanted to get rid of that. So we developed a video uh, plate recognition system and a short range comm system to get rid of all the toll booths and let you do up to 320 kilometres an hour, which no one wow. <laughs> no. Uh, But that was interesting because we had to um, we had to rebuild the North Lakes racetrack to be able to test and develop the system. So there were some good outcomes from that for not just doing the project but spin-offs because you know, that reinvigorated the racing up there in North Lakes. After the free float tolls project, I went to Cubic and did the go-card ticketing system. So it allow you to get on a bus, a train, a ferry, you know, just tap and go. And so, again, it's electronics onto platforms. And you'll see a bit of a theme here. It's uh, complex comms and systems, electronics, always integrating onto something, you know, be it a road, be it a helicopter, be it a, a train, a bus, uh, et cetera. Started to get promoted through the ranks, um, you know, starting to take leadership roles. I ended up in Schneider Electric as the national engineering manager. I was undergoing change management for that business because they were trying to stay competitive in a very competitive business uh, as well as grow and, and you know, increase the, um, uh, their portfolio. So we, we came up with new innovative ways of engineering HVAC systems and security systems and, again, integrating electronics onto buildings and smart buildings and where Schneider wanted to go with that. So... That was pretty cool. We did some really innovative um, things there and communities of practice, learning sessions, um, adapting and changing the business for the current environment. So that was pretty cool. The CEO was having a problem in Sydney with their tolling system and with my tolling background, he asked if I could come down and, and fix his problem there uh, because the New South Wales government didn't want to have the Schneider system. They wanted to go with the, the CAP system, which is trans-urban system and as you know they've got a monopoly now on all the tolling systems around Australia and so they didn't want to finish that project so that was problematic and some of your questions later we'll get into that example and from Schneider where did I go I, I went to Tate Communications which is a small New Zealand radio firm they're, they're built on a figure eight and Sir Angus Tate was the founder of that and he didn't want it to be overtaken or bought out by big companies like Motorola, et cetera. So he set it up as a trust with uh, half the trust was the Christchurch University. And the other half of the trust was a charity and then a small snippet for his family. So that was kind of interesting as well because they had big problems trying to grow because they were locked in this trust. But they had such really cool technology that everyone wanted to buy it. So that brought a whole different dynamic of problems to the business that needed to be solved. Um, for them, I was doing the train radio system up here in Brisbane, so changing it from an old analogue system to up-to-date digital uh, system. That had a lot of problems and challenges in a, in a train radio safety system that we had to develop, uh, so that was pretty cool. And then my current role, which I've been in for four years now, was a young uh, um, captain who knew me. Well, he didn't actually know me from the Army, but you know, he knew of me from the Army. I uh, said, hey, I've got a problem, Andrew. I've got to deliver this JP2008, the SATCOM system, into the fence and we don't know how to do it. Can, can you come and give me half day a week to help me? So I said, all right, I'll have a look at what your problem space is. And I went and had a coffee with him and his boss. And I was doing a tender for uh, upgrading all the radio systems in the Army. And I said, guys, this is more than half, half day a week to deliver this program. This is a full-time job, 60 hours a week. I said, you've got to do this, this, this. And I mapped out everything that was going to happen to them over the next three months to get through the design phase and then after that the build, testing, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so they offered me a job straight away. 
<laughs> pretty much, and, and that's where I've been. Uh, moved into the role of chief engineer for JB2008. Um, we're just finishing delivering that project, and now we're going to the next phase uh, under transformation again to a much larger uh, SATCOM project, which is 9102, which is a $4 billion project over the next 15 years to uh, design, build and fly and uh, provide military SATCOM across Australia, you know, that is owned and sovereign, built in Australia. So that's really cool. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's quite a career starting from machine gunner in the army to where you are now, uh, you know, working on such a humongous project, $4 billion over 15 years, developing this SATCOM technology for Australia. It's amazing. And in some ways, I guess, characteristic of mature age students that come to uh, a place like USQ and get their degree, as you were saying before, through the hardships of, you know, trying to do it with family and so forth, but um, finding education as a means to success in your life. Yeah, I mean, and that's the key thing. I have, uh, I've been lucky because I've been able to pick and choose the subjects that are relevant to the actual work I'm doing at any point in time. So I like to, you know, for example, right now, uh, I'm just finishing the subject on project delivery, you know, and then writing the tender for this $4 billion project, you know. So there's huge synergies around, you know, going through the study of project delivery and what does that mean, how complex it is, and then writing up a tender response at the same time, you know, really assisted in doing the assignments and, it gives me a deeper understanding as well of the work I'm doing. So if I can keep the subjects aligned to my work, I find it an easy way to get through not just the learning but going to that next level of learning because it's a real experience. It's not just, you know, I'm doing a subject, getting a tick in the box and trying to get a piece of paper, you know. That doesn't sort of work for me, you know. Um, and, you know, in all honesty, I think my degrees have come after I've got the promotions anyway. They assist in getting the job but... That's only the gets you to the interview, and you know you've got to have the experience and the exposure and the expertise behind that to to be real and you know to stand up and to be able to do it. Andrew, in our MBA program, to shift the idea of what a system is beyond forms of IT, we characterised a system as a configuration of things, um, things like people and and resources, those things that suit our need to address a problem. Is that a definition that resonates with you in, in your career, a configuration of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a systems engineer by trade, I suppose. You know, that's sort of what I call myself because it's about systems of systems, interacting, interfacing, working together to give an outcome. And it's in all forms and factors. You know, even if I look at my, my body at the moment, you know, I'm undergoing transformational change because I'm getting older I'm starting to get more aches and pains, you know, my knees are a bit shot from being a paratrooper, you know, jumping out of aircraft and smashing into the ground. And so I'm at the point now where, you know, I wake up at 3am and my back's hurting, my knees are hurting, my shoulders hurting from all the injuries. And so I go and talk to my doctor and I get one viewpoint from him. He says, well, you know, Andrew, your, your knees have got arthritis, your, your back is compressed and your, your shoulder, you've got these, you know, dislocation three times that have caused issues. And I go, well, that's all well good, but what are we going to do about that? And, you know, he gives me an X-ray and gives me the, the signs and symptoms. So then I go off to my physio and I say, hey, you know, my physio who's who's works in these joints working together and I go you know like what can we do about this he goes well your back's hurting because your knees 
hurting and it's pulling on these tendons and these tendons are tightening, it's pulling your back out and that's caused by your shoulder because the shoulder is interrelated to the back and that's causing issues as well. So you need to strengthen these other core components to alleviate that pain. And so as a systems engineer, I go, yeah, well, I can relate to that fully, you know, because it's one system interacting with another system that has cause and effect, you know, and that, that's the reality of it. So, and every action has, you know, an equal and opposite reaction, you know, we all know that fundamentally. So I apply uh, that principle into my body. I go, all right, well, Mr. Physio and Mr. Doctor, get them talking to each other, you know, what can I do to uh, fix this problem? And so the doctor says, well, you've got to make sure you don't compress your spine more. And then the physio goes, well, to do that, we need to lengthen, you know, this muscle, that muscle, that muscle, and we need to strengthen this muscle, that muscle. And, uh, you know, over the last six months I've been doing that and the pain's going away. I don't wake up at 3 a.m. Um, I can't run anymore, but, you know, it doesn't hurt in my knees, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that's a life experience, you know, and that's the same with engineering, the same when I'm building a complex satellite system or a road tolling system or a uh, ticketing system. You know, it's all about the interfaces and how does something behave and react uh, in that space, you know. And if I look at the mission critical, the safety critical systems, like the radio train system as an example, you know, the trains in Brisbane, they travel at 60 kilometres an hour and they're big and heavy and hard to stop. Uh, the critical factor there was about making sure that you had constant communications to that trains at all times because if you... If you have one minute that you're not talking to that train, that train's gone a kilometre. You know, and if you think about that as a train's heading towards a, a signal and the signals are out and there's a train on the, the path or a car on the path or whatever, you know, some safety event, you know, you can't afford to have 20 seconds of no comms because the train's gone 300 metres, you know, and then it takes up to 600 to 700 metres to stop the train. So you can quickly see how that creates a very uh, strict paradigm of safety that you need to engineer your solution into, you know, and, and that created uh, huge challenges because, you know, in Brisbane, the demographics, it's hilly in some areas, there's corners, there's all these different interference uh, frequencies uh, that you've got to deal with and going digital and creating this um, constant communications and we have 52, well, if you're not aware, there's 52 base stations around Brisbane that creates this mesh network. And they've got to talk to the 122 trains. I think, Andrew, what you've done there is you've pointed out two really important things. One is that systems are interconnected, or at least they should be, even if the people who are working in those systems aren't aware that they are. So you've pointed out with your GP and your physio that they really need to be talking to each other in order to help produce the same outcome, which is a better life physical health for you but also you've pointed out that um, systems extremely important for all sorts of reasons but therefore they're, they're critical in the sense that you need to have backup systems you need to have multiple ways of assuring that nothing can go wrong I guess yeah correct and then, you know and the more critical then the more you need to put into it and I guess that's something that a lot of your work would be quite critical a lot of the work that you've done yeah, I mean, right now, like building the satellites, you know, so once you launch that sucker, you're not going back. One <laughs> <laughs> of the bolts is loose, you can't just fix it. Yeah, so everything has to be tested, everything's got to be engineered, everything's got to be, you know, making sure that it's going to work uh, because there's nothing more more embarrassing than, 
you know, putting the bird up there and, you know, the hobble scope as, a, as an example and oh, we didn't factor in the, uh, the pressure of space so, so the uh, lens is out of alignment, you know, two years to fix that. Andrew, I want to talk about the whole organisation in terms of people and thinking about people and how they're structured as systems. Do you think leadership can be achieved without systems and processes that support the leader? Yeah, that's interesting, you know, because my, my experience in different companies, and, you know, I'll talk to, to Boeing and Talis. So Boeing is an American company and Talis is a French company. Um, so Boeing, we, we used to have a joke. It was, you know, let's, let's release our processes and systems to everyone so everyone can be just as disadvantaged by the, the processes, you know, because everything was structured and, you know, there's a process for, you know, everything you do and there's sign-off for everything you do. You know, and that has its place, Um and can be helpful and then then tell us the french company was kind of totally opposite had no processes and you were developing it all the time from you know from scratch you know and and that had its advantages because you could change things and you could adapt things but it was also a disadvantage because it wasn't as efficient you know and it wasn't as streamlined and you know you had to think about the minor processes uh, all the time just to get the job done so I think there's a balance somewhere, and I don't know exactly where it is, but there's a balance between the two. You know, you need supportive processes that allow the leader to to know that I don't have to worry about the micro, you know, it's just the process will look after that and I can be thinking the big picture and the strategy and and driving the company towards it. And then at the same time, you know, if if the process is not there, then, then I'm thinking about stuff that I shouldn't be worrying about, you know, and not getting the job done. So... I think there's something in between. I'm not exactly sure where it is right now, but I'm sure it'll come. I've experienced both and I suppose they both have a place. Thinking about those structures of people that are in place and how they work, do you think it's time that we questioned how traditional hierarchical power structures in organisations work? Is there a place for more democracy? So this is an interesting one. I was talking to a colleague of mine who also worked at Boeing and he's working on my tender now. I got him in to help me. Uh, and he used to manage Harold E. Holt, which is you know, Western Australia. It's a HF listening uh, station in defence. But um, very unique workforce um, where it's customer outcome and it's customer focused. And what he did was is he flipped the whole pyramid on its head you know instead of having the traditional leader at the top and layers of management coming down and finally get to the workers that actually do something you know being managed by all these people up top and they weren't actually getting any outcomes and so what he did was he flipped the whole thing on its head he said look the, the workers are the the frontline people developing and debil- delivering the outcomes let's put them in charge with the of what we're trying to achieve and let's make the managers a support environment under them and then every layer underneath, you know, so the direct managers to, to those crews would would be supporting those people who are delivering the outcomes that they needed. And the beauty and benefit of, of flipping it on its head and taking the, the shine, I suppose, off the CEO and pushing it down and putting it on the worker and having everyone else supporting up was it made them really easy to, one, get through the enterprise agreements with the unions because they fully bought into it and loved it. And so they assisted him to develop the the processes, the tools, um, the agreements, and they got easy sign-off from the unions on it. Um, The bosses loved it because it actually made their job easier because the workers are coming up with what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, how it needs to be done, 
you know, and you've got a lot more people thinking about those problem spaces than having one individual trying to, you know, guide the ship. Um, and so it, it really became more uh, democratic, I suppose, in, in the mythology. And as it come down the layers and it got to the boss, you know, he could be thinking about other things because he didn't have to worry about it because the outcomes were occurring. You know, and that's quite unique. I, you know, I'd love to see that happen more often in those types of organisations, um, but it takes a gutsy CEO to give up control and, and have that trust you know, because that's ultimately what it comes back to in those types of organisations. You need to have a lot of trust in the people, the processes, the tools, you know, and the outcomes. But, yeah, that was, that was a very exciting. And no doubt very exciting for the staff, as you put before, that if they feel that they can actually make a difference rather than just being told to put a key in a lock and turn it and open the door, then they can they can really invest themselves in that job. Yeah, and they do, and you know, and that's that's the key here. It's about empowering the people in the in the workforce to actually have that, you know, not just do the job, but they're committed to the job. You know, they've got the authority to do the job. You know, and when we talk about delegation, a lot of the times we, we delegate activities down, but we don't delegate, you know, the authority or the responsibility. You know, and if you make someone fully responsible for their actions and for the outcomes, you know, you'll get a lot more buy-in to the performance of what they're trying to do. And then they'll give you a lot more, you know, and they'll commit a lot more. Often managers will uh, delegate, as you say, a task down and say, we need this done, we need it done that way. Can you do it? And and it takes all possibility of any decision away from the worker in the, in that instance. Are they delegating or are they directing? <laughs> you know, they think they're delegating, but they're just directing, right? They're just saying, do this, do it this way, you know. And so you don't really get commitment or buy-in by that worker. You know, you've got to let the worker come up with the answer. How many workers have we met who say, okay, and then they turn to their colleague and go, I wouldn't do it that way, but that's what I've been told to do. And then sometimes they'll ignore you and just do it their way anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the decision-making power, I guess, is not necessarily always in the right place. If we're employing people who are experts like yourself, how do we make sure that we get the expert knowledge out of them? And and that may very well be by flipping the pyramid, as you say. Yeah, and it's it's the trust as well. You know, so it's it's is the, is the advice coming from that expert tr- correct? You know, and, and I find myself quite often being corrected by, you know, even by my graduates. I, I put five graduates on this uh, proposal and they are just doing dynamic things, you know, and I find them correcting me all the time. And I go, beauty, you know, there's five of you, one of me. I, I don't have the right answer all the time. <laughs> it's like when your kids catch you out. Yeah. <laughs> they love to put it out. <laughs> yeah. If I won once more, well, actually, you know, you're 2.2 degrees off on that. They love to let you know. Andrew, one of the things we discuss in this course is how complex problems frequently provoke complicated solutions from management. And I'm sure you're very aware of this because you've worked in a lot of roles which have very complicated problems that need to be solved. But often simple solutions can be put forward by other people in the organisation. Can you talk a little bit about that and how the right people can provoke a, a much simpler solution? Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge there is, you know, depending on the organisation, everyone's looking at the boss to have all the answers and, you know, and a lot of the times the boss doesn't have the answers and the answers are sitting in inside the brain's trust. 
You know, and it's how do you encourage that team to come forward with those ideas? You know, and, and I've seen over time, you know, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's difficult, and it really comes back to, you know, the team dynamics and getting that that interaction between the members where they can trust each other and feel free to say something and not get criticised or condemned over what they're, they're putting forward, whether it be right or wrong. Um, because I've found myself many times starting a, a workshop thinking I had the correct answer to find out that, like, I'm 180 degrees out of phase, you know, had totally the wrong view point of where to go and, and having workshopped it with the team, you know, by allowing them to challenge me and to, to you know, criticise, well, not criticise, but to, to uh, really um, put their point forward, I've found I've come out of the meeting with a total different viewpoint. You know, and we've changed direction in that meeting through, you know, the group think and, and getting con- consensus on where to go. So, you know, the challenge is, is as a boss is allowing them to think and allowing them to have a voice and then having the maturity to be able to say, all right, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you're right. 90% of the time I am wrong. <laughs> and, and also allowing within that group think, them to be wrong occasionally too and that's okay so that they feel confident to come up with ideas? There's nothing worse than not making a decision. You know, depending on the situation, you know, what you're trying to do, you should always at least go in a direction, whether it's right or wrong. It's, it's at least you're going somewhere and you can always adjust and change after. And, and that's the other part of good leadership is allowing it to uh, grow and develop the way it needs to but then also allowing it to move and change if, it, if required. Businesses, Andrew, and, and their customers are part of a joint system, those systems that we were talking about earlier that, that fit together. But we in the NBA see them as integral to the business system themselves. They have mutual concerns uh, for solving problems or a passion in developing something. Do you find that any of the businesses that you've worked with that is something that occurs. There's a consideration or even a communication with the uh, joint between the joint systems of customer or user and the business itself. Yeah, uh, a couple of good examples, and for both for and against. Um, you know, so if I go back to the uh, free flow toll project, we were actually co-located with the the customer in in the um, Queensland Motorways offices being there at Eight Mile Plains. And, um, and so I had the customer chief engineer sitting pretty much next to me in the office and I had my team integrated in with his team. Um, and so it worked really well because we had very fast decision-making and we could bounce ideas off each other, you know, and, and you build the rapport and the trust with your customer and you get very intimate in the whole process. Um, and the reason it worked really well is because, you know, they didn't know how to do complex systems engineering and we didn't know exactly what they wanted um, from a solution at the start. You know, we had to actually develop it. I went over to, to Paris and talked to my French colleagues and said, okay, where's this uh, tolling system? And they showed me an empty gantry and they said, Andrew, here it is. You must develop it. And then Anna Bly, who was the premier at the time, said, well, Andrew, you know, this project that you you got three years to de- deliver I want you to do it in two because I've got an election coming up. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, and the only reason we could deliver in two years 
uh, was because we had that customer intimacy and that integrated team that worked really well. And then I went from there uh, on the Boeing project with Vigilaire. It was totally the opposite. You know, the customer had an office in the Boeing building, but it was an integrated team. Um, and, you know, we were at loggerheads every day. You know, there'd be two contractual letters sent between each other and it was just death by by contract and, you know, you're not doing this and you're not doing that and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it was, it was an ugly place to work. I hated it. You know, and you, you get to the point where you don't even want to go to work for the day because you know it's just going to be conflict all day and you're not going to move the program forward. You know, and that program ended up twice the budget and, and twice the time. You know, and you look at it and you go, yeah, that's crazy. If we, if we just cooperated and talked to each other and communicated and integrated, you know, we would have saved a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time. Phil Mumford was the CEO of Queensland Motorways at the time when, when he promoted that integrated solution. You know, and he pulled me aside. He said, look, Andrew, I'm, I'm not here to send you broke. Everyone's going to make a profit. Um, but I need this done on time. How do we achieve it? You know, and he, he put the problem back onto us. He said, you know, if anyone on my team is not helping you, let me know. I'll go talk to them and realign their, their position. You know, so that works super. So when I came onto this project, and, you know, and I came in late and Stu said, you know, I've got to deliver this SAPCOM system. I said, well, the first thing we need to do is get intimate with our customer. And we created that environment, even though we weren't in the same office, we created that, listen to the customer, integrate them into our process, get them into the decision cycle. And the beauty about that, and, and Northrop uses Agile methodologies and Agile supports that. You know, it's what's important to you, what's the very first thing you need you know, how can we work together to deliver that? And, and again, you know, it creates the dynamic team that everyone really energises up and they want to come to work every day. You know, and it, it's exciting. Um, as opposed to when you're confronting and fighting, it's, it's horrible. So I know what I prefer to do. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, we've been talking about connections of people. These networks um, are connections of people within the business, but also business to business, business to customer and government, as you've mentioned, all together. Can they also be the connection of resources too? And, and if they are, what influences do you think networks have both for the business and for leaders inside and outside of a business when we take into account resources? Yeah, so if I think about it from a people's resources perspective, so you know, all the big companies, they all run matrix organisations because they're doing a lot of things and they're trying to do a lot of things and, you know, with a limited number of people. Um, so people are a resource and, you know, becomes competitive on a project-by-project project basis and trying to get that, that one smart guy on your team when he's wanted in 15 different places, you know, becomes challenging. More recently, uh, talking to uh, the construction industry because we need to build a few more data centres for this next project, you know, they're warning me, they're saying, Andrew, you know, there's a steel shortage and in two years' time when you want to be building those um, data centres, there's not going to be enough steel and there's not enough construction workers in Australia to do the work, you know, and so they're giving me forewarning of, of a problem that's going to come and I go, oh, okay, we'll have to throw that down the creek and think about it. But you have to think about it, you know, because there's no point of ramping everything up if the resource is not there. You know, if the steel's not there, if the person's not there, if the, you know, even if the legislation's not there. You know, when I, when I look at, because uh, I'm on the Board of Engineers Australia and we're doing, trying to solve this um, uh, net zero by 2050 equation, it's quite complex. It's very hard to, to work through that. You know, and one option is you could go nuclear. 
you know, it's it's cleaner and cheaper, but it's riskier. Um, there was a study done on that uh, in a paper, and and when you actually look at it, you go, well, it's a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing it? You know, we have uranium, you know, yada yada. But the law won't allow you because in 1980, when Chernobyl blew up, we brought all these laws in that stop us from doing something. And and I look at that and I go, that's just crazy. You know, we're, we're 2021 now, we're 40 years past that event. Surely things have changed, you know, technology's advanced, you know, we've got smarter, faster, you know, and, and do we really want to get to net zero? We've got to think outside the box. So absolutely, resources are a fundamental part of any delivery. If you don't have them, you can't, right? It doesn't happen. Andrew, I want to finish on learning, um, which is apt considering we're a university, but I want to talk about organisational learning. In your experience, do businesses spend enough time learning from their mistakes, also the mistakes of other businesses that that are aligned with them? And perhaps again, in your experience, do they even know how to learn properly from those mistakes? Yeah, and I have a I have a saying. Um, I've tried to drive lessons learned, you know, probably the last twenty years in all the different organisations, and what I find is organisation the best that they mostly do is they observe. It's lessons observed. Um, rarely are they learnt or even uh, actioned on. You know, and if I if I go through the list of companies, the different methods, they're all similar in their thinking. You know, it's about you know an event's occurred, capture the event and document it and learn the lesson from it. You know, and so if I look at Schneider Electric, they have a really great database, global database, and a community of practice where um, they share dynamically learnings as they go you know so i'll have a technician sitting in melbourne who has a problem and he'll throw it up to this community of practice and you know i'm talking 20 years ago so i'm not talking recently how this worked and this community of practice would have guys in sweden uh, the uk they're all bought into it and so he'd get answers like in two or three hours he'd get 15 different answers of people who've experienced that problem and then he can make his own determination from, you know, that collective knowledge that sits in that ecosystem. And I found that very interesting, you know, because they've got to be passionate people that buy into that community of practice. So what I did was I took that community of practice thought back then and said, right, we need to now elevate our engineering to the next level. And we put a more formal structure around the community of practice. And I got the leaders from every branch in and I empowered them to um, and, you know, funded them to communi- communicate and collaborate. And we in Australia, we got that working very dynamically. So I found that interesting, you know, to have all these individual branches that are autonomous little business units are actually collaborating and working together and solving problems. So the, the, but the point there is they're only solving problems from their personal learning. You know, they did have a database where you do a project and you do a lesson learned session and you'd capture the information into the database and then forget about it. Um, I used to even try and do uh, lessons learnt more formally and I'd send out questionnaires after a project. I'd sit the team down and drag them through a lessons learnt session and you can see them all moaning and cringing, going, look, I just want to get on my next job. I'm not really interested in this part of the closing part of a project. You know, and, and you, you try and encourage them, you know, this is important for the, the company to grow. But even then, you know, like you go through all those lessons, you throw it in the database, and I found that it's only as good as the next event, you know, and the lessons don't last a long time. They, they seem to re, they'll reinvigorate themselves and rehappen many times. 
you know, and then, you know, and that was Schneider. And then, you know, Talus, very similar thing. They're, they do a lot of lessons learned. They have a database. They do it slightly different, though. Their database, you can search. So when you come to do your tender or your next project, you search the database for, for anything equivalent to the, the problem you're trying to solve. And so they've got a, a knowledge base there that is more like the internet, I suppose, where you can Google word search into the database and it'll bring up, you know, collective across the globe, all the guys that have been doing the same thing. So it's similar to the communities of practice, but a different way of capturing that knowledge and information. And then at Northrop Grumman, you know, getting exposed to Agile methodology or more important, scaled Agile, uh, one thing I found really cool was doing the retrospective after every sprint, where at the end of the retrospective, they're doing, you know, what did they love and what did they loathe about that two-week sprint? And they go through and they really get passionate about, you know, this worked for me, but I couldn't get my job done because I got blocked by this or this stopped me. You know, I didn't like that process. And so they're dynamically changing the process on a week-by-week basis. And I find that really interesting because what pops out of that is over a number of sprints, you build up the knowledge, but it also becomes repetitive. You go, right, this problem's occurred 15 times. As the manager, I can sit outside that team. They can continue to work, but then I can take a more in-depth look at what's the problem here, you know, what's causing this repetitive mistake that's occurring that I can observe. And that's more real time. And I find that far better than running a lessons learned at the end of a project and trying to drag people back through their memories of what worked and what didn't work. Doing it dynamically as you go and adapting as you go is a far better way of creating that knowledge organisation. I still think it's a bit of a buzzword though when when I hear my CEO saying I'm creating a knowledge uh, organisation. (laughs) because I I haven't seen any of them do it yet. But I think this is the closest I'm getting to with Agile that that seems to help it. That's a a really good tip for our students, Andrew, to to do it as you go, to reflect on it sort of live will give much more immediacy and, you know, stop things from being forgotten, from being um, infected by, you know, poor memory or, you know, cultural change and, and things that can change these over time. And as you say, so often they're forgotten anyway over time and then repeated andrew smith thank you so much for coming on the show today no worries thank you information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site this has been a university of southern queensland podcast